As we age, our vision ages with us. And as the population ages, we need new drugs to treat age-related vision loss. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'm joined by Laszlo Bakashi, Vice President of Strategy and Innovation, and Jonathan Angelostro, Executive Director of Project Delivery here at Cineos Health. Ophthalmology Clinical Trials next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Laszlo Bakashi, Jonathan Angelostro, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure. So the Super Bowl was yesterday as we're recording this show. There was an ad about vision. Tell us about the ad. Tell us why it matters and tell us what month we are now in. The Chiefs won, which was good news for me. But what was interesting is that there was a Google AI commercial yesterday showing a gentleman going through different stages of his life and taking pictures on his camera. And this gentleman had low vision and the camera was able to signal to him when his face and someone else's face was in the frame. And it would say, you people identified. And then it moved through different stages of his life and he eventually had a baby. And then it was three people are now identified. It was just a very interesting ad because it happens to be low vision and AMD month in the month of February. And ophthalmology is more and more present in people's lives. It was just an interesting combination of events last night. As you said, February is Low Vision Awareness Month. It's something that the National Eye Institute talks about and brings up. It's something that's increasingly a condition that's affecting Americans as we age and affecting, of course, Western Europeans as the populations age. What can we do about it? I understand that both of you work in clinical trials for low vision. You said AMD. What is AMD if you're not familiar with AMD? AMD is age-related macular degeneration. This basically means that the retinal layers are getting diseased as people are growing old. This is not a normal process, so you shouldn't expect that when people get old, they see less than they have seen before when they were younger. It is a disease which is primarily starting at ages of 50 and gradually and slowly by decades are gradually decreasing the visual acuity of a patient. This process is slow, so screening is important because this is how you can detect any changes in the retina and you can get some treatment for that. There are two types of this age-related macular degeneration. There is a dry type that is slowly progressing one. And that is the wet type, which is called a wet or no vascular age-related macular degeneration, which is relatively abrupt and people need immediate treatment within the first month of getting the diagnosis to save the vision. That sounds frightening, and I didn't know that. So when we talk about macular degeneration, my trivia training tells me the macula is the most important part of the vision in the central part of the vision. Am I remembering that right or am I off slightly? Yeah, correct. This is the central part of the retina where there are most of the cones are located, which are the photoreceptors or the photosensitive cells in the retina. Okay. So if I'm having macular degeneration, I'm having degeneration of The part of the vision you don't want to lose, not your peripheral vision, not something out of the corner of your eye, but right in the middle where you would like to be able to see things. And especially if you want to see color, it sounds like. Then the other question is wet. Wet makes me think of wet eyes. I don't think that that's what wet means in this case. 
if you want to make it easy to understand. So the macula is the part of the back of the eye you use when you look at something. So for example, if you look at your watch, then you're using your macula. If you're watching a television show. Like the Super Bowl, for example, just saying. Yeah, if you try to focus on the ball, that's the macula you are using actually, yes. So you can imagine when somebody is losing a function of the macula, sees a kind of grayish or black spot in the middle of the visual field, how disturbing this can be. Absolutely. And then you mentioned two types, one I should worry about and one I should really worry about. The worry about one was dry type, which sounded more progressive and more what I'm used to and thinking my vision's getting old over time. The other one you said was an emergency and needed to be treated quickly. What makes wet type wet? What makes it an emergency? What's happening? Yes, in the wet type, normally the retina does have some internal vascularization, internal blood vessels, but at the layer where the photoreceptors are, there shouldn't be any vessels. That area is nourished by some diffusion. The nourishments are going from the outer layers of the retina to the photoreceptors. But when there is some stress factors, like there is less oxygen or some blockage of this nourishment, this gives a signal to the external layers of the retina that the retina, the photoreceptor cells need more oxygen. So new vessels start to develop and they break through into those photoreceptor layers. And those newly generated vessels are called no vascularization. And those vessel walls are typically not as good as the original vessels, and they leak some fluid in between the photoreceptor cells. This is why we call it a wet type of AMD. So you can say there is some fluid, there is some edema, there is some thickening of the layers where it shouldn't be, where it should be flat. And this is what is causing a problem for the photoreceptors if this process is standing for long. So you need to reduce this edema and you need to try to flatten this retina as much as it can be by some treatment. So I'm going to ask you how you know if you're a patient that it's an emergency and wet type in a second, but I'm just going to follow up on kind of one thing to make sure I understand. There's something that is giving oxygen or at least oxygen and other nutrients, but oxygen for sure to those blood vessels in your retina. And I do know some of it just comes through your eye. It just goes right through the front part of your eye, through your cornea, et cetera. It just diffuses in. You don't breathe it in completely. You're also just getting it there through the front part. You open your eye and you're just kind of breathing, which is kind of awesome. And then for whatever reason, one or both of those isn't working. So your body goes nuts trying to make a whole bunch of new blood vessels and they're bad blood vessels. And so they ruin your vision. Am I repeating reality or am I missing something that's crucial or something that I said is just so far off you need to correct me? I think generally you're right. But to answer your original question, you don't know which type of AMD you have because you don't clearly see what you are looking at. So there is a central spot in your visual field that disturbs your vision, which is steadily there. And you need to go to get it checked to get it clarified. What is the type of disease you have? And the answer is don't wait in case it's wet type. If something is there in the middle of your eye, go and get it checked. Yeah. So you don't know what is the situation. So you need to get it checked. And when the doctor or the optometrist says, because some optometrists can do the diagnosis as well, that, hey, it looks like wet AMD, you need to get a treatment. This is the moment that you don't need to hesitate when you go to an ophthalmologist, typically a retina specialist, and the retina specialist says, hey, you need an injection, get it. Well, thank you, Laszlo. Now, Jonathan, we work 
with clinical trials and companies that are trying to solve problems in either wet AMD or dry type AMD, but presumably wet AMD, we have a little bit better idea of some of the different mechanisms that are involved. All sorts of questions rise now that I know even a little bit about how wet AMD arises, about how it might be difficult to run a clinical trial in this area. Yeah, I think for wet AMD, one of the things to understand is that there is a proven treatment out there. So it's a bit of a different space than there is for dry AMD. In wet AMD, there is something proven out there. There's a method of administration. It's an injection that's given monthly, and that's typically the ideal treatment. What everyone is trying to find is a way to extend the duration between treatments. That's kind of the grail. Can you find an injection that takes you from doing it monthly to, I only have to get this injection every three months, every six months. And that is what many of our clients are trying to find. That helps. And just to clarify, because my understanding is based on project work or near project work, that this is cancer drug for stopping growth of tumor blood vessels is what you use in very low doses in very, very, very tiny amounts injected straight in the eye. Am I correct in that? Almost, Jeff. So originally, a lot of the cancers, a lot of the tumors are having nerve vascularization as well. And there is some factors that are creating those vessels and those medicines that are stopping this nerve vascularization. Ugly name, they're called anti-VEGFs, anti-vascular endothelial growth factors. That's the name of it. It's a kind of a group name. And these have initially been used in oncology, and then they have been transferred into ophthalmology with some modifications, because obviously it's not always the case that you can use the same medication that you use intravenously that you can use into the eye because the environment is different. So there are some modifications, those levels, what is needed there. So that was the origin. And then they have been introduced into ophthalmology, I think it is now almost 20 years that they have been continuously used in growing numbers for wet AMD patients. Okay, so there's a standard of care. If you're going to do work in this area, you would have to go against the standard of care. That's pretty clear. When you have to enroll patients very, very quickly, there's not time to waste. Another feature of wet AMD. I think I've got at least some better idea of the problem. So thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Laszlo. What kind of problems does dry type create for pharma companies that are trying to do clinical trials? Yeah, I think this is an interesting part of the clinical space right now. And Laszlo can go into a little more detail on this too, because he sits in an interesting position where he sees the broad landscape of everything that occurs in ophthalmology because he's the one who works on every strategy that we propose for clients. But the interesting thing about the dry space is that we have just the first recently approved drug for it. It doesn't have a lot of established approved medications for it the way wet AMD does. Dry AMD, they've only recently had something that was a certified treatment for it, essentially. And so now we're seeing that a lot of our potential clients are looking for those solutions. I can't really say why they failed to look for that at the same rate that they did wet AMD. I have a feeling that some of it is that it took a while for ophthalmologists to really see a clear distinction between dry and wet AMD. But now we are finding a point where 
that market is there for our clients. And we think that in 2024, we're going to see more studies around that. I think this gives you a very good opportunity to step a little bit back to the wet AMD thing. So the wet AMD market and the wet AMD development is basically focusing at the moment on one type of action of medications, the anti-VEGFs. And it is just recently that there are some novel action, method of action medications came to the clinical development, the clinical research field. They are not approved yet. And actually for the patients, I'm saying that if whatever anti-VEGF is offered to the patient as a first injection, the time factor is most important. It's more important than thinking and trying to find which anti-VEGF is the best. So whenever somebody's offered the first injection, please accept that. And then after having a few of those, maybe two, three, then think what is the next step going to be. Whereas in geographic atrophy or dry AMD, geographic atrophy is the end stage of dry AMD, basically. We don't know the pathogenesis. We don't understand at the moment the full development of this disease. And there are several pathways that are investigated at the same time. At the moment, nobody knows which is the best one. So this is why it is not so easy to answer from the clinical perspective what is the best drug in the clinical research at the moment, which we give the highest hope for the future. There are two drugs approved. These are the best patients can have at the moment. That's really interesting. As we think through clinical trial enrollment is always an issue. It just always is. It's a limiting factor in many clinical trials, if not all of them. With the wet type, we know clearly what the patients are once they get diagnosed, but then you have to move so quickly. You can't really hope to enroll from the general population. You're trying to enroll specific sites that have a drug that so obviously has the possibility of being better than the standard of care or is so obviously similar, but as Jonathan said, a different number of injections, not every week because getting a weekly injection in your eye, was it? That doesn't sound fun. That's what you would maybe focus on rather than incremental improvements that are in a different mechanism of action. Hard, hard to enroll those trials, just challenging. On the other side, similar to cancer, you might look for clinical trials. You have a little bit of time to look for clinical trials. You're trying to maximize potentially you as a patient, what you're in and getting the best possible treatment, which might not be on the market yet. Am I outlining what you guys perceive as being the major challenges in managing clinical trials in AMD? Uh, I think I have to disappoint you a little bit. because oh, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> From the clinical trial perspective, these studies are typically having some kind of comparator, like a standard of care embedded into the clinical study, which is good because the patient's either getting potential better treatment than the standard of care or the standard of care. So there is no patients left without treatment. Actually, this is the ideal situation. But on the other side, these studies are relatively cumbersome for the patients because they need to come monthly. So even if we try to test a therapy that is planned to be given six monthly, because the comparator is not planned to be given six monthly, and because we don't know enough of the safety of the drug, the patient need to come monthly or maybe sometimes bi-monthly to these clinical studies for like two years. And I think this is a huge burden for the patients because these are not young patients. I certainly agree with you. The challenge here is that our populations are usually 50 and older. The low vision means that maybe they need some supplemental assistance in coming to those visits or getting 
do the office, uh, things that we can certainly help provide them, but they're just additional headaches. Who really wants to deal with that? The visits themselves are often quite long. There's a lot of assessments that you have to do. As you get older, the more of the medical things that you have to deal with, it just kind of seems to take away some of your dignity as you have to face all these different challenges. Certainly see it with my own parents getting older. And I think our age group, they start to experience that. And that's a tough sell there too. And when they have an established level of treatment that's quite good, it's hard to get them into a study necessarily. We do have a lot of good sites, a lot of good ophthalmologists, people who are looking for the next best thing. And that's a lot of what we rely on to get our patients is that you have investigator and a staff that have these relationships with their patients that they can talk to them about, hey, this is something that could be better. We can help you experience something different and maybe add to your way of life, even though in the short term, it may be added effort and work for you. So it's not as though you're not getting treated. You're getting treated in both cases. It's just always against standard of care. It would be unethical to go against placebo, it sounds like. But we have, as you're talking about, Jonathan, the broader picture of patients need to be able to get to the clinical trial sites. And they have these other time constraints on them, life constraints on them that make it more challenging. How do we overcome those kinds of barriers? Because it isn't just in ophthalmology where we see these problems, but in ophthalmology, it maybe is expanded given the more elderly population that is facing these conditions. That's exactly right. The standard offerings in these studies, certainly I would think ophthalmology or other indications is that we give them some level of concierge service or travel back and forth. Perhaps they are booked through a car service or something like that. That's a pretty basic level of care that we give our potential patients. And we look at other ways that we can help them along and make this process easier on them. I mean, one of the things, it's a clinical trial. They're paid to ophthalmology clinical trials for age-related macular degeneration. Do they tend to run high because you have to pay more for the patients, given what you've suggested? They're not going to do it out of the goodness of their hearts in quite the same way you might when you do vaccine trials. I was a participant in the COVID vaccine trials. I did not do that because of the payment. I did it because it would be helpful to get the COVID vaccine early for myself, potentially, and for the world. I didn't do it for the money. There are a lot of patient benefits joining a retina clinical study. For example, even if you are entitled to receive a standard of care in your country, because we are running these studies not just in the U.S., but in several other countries in the world, completely diverse populations. So even if you have access to the standard of care, oftentimes you're facing with very busy clinics where you have a lot of patients waiting in the same waiting room. You don't have a dedicated time. You need to wait a half day there to get in. Then you get an injection. Then you don't get your next injection in the required timeline. Because if you look at the real world late phase studies, they always show that in wet AMD, typically in the first year, the patients are getting four or five injections. Whereas by the label, they would need evolve from one drug and maybe seven or eight from the other one, but they never get it. So joining a clinical study means that whatever drug you get, you get it as per the label and you have a dedicated time with the clinic and you have a concert service 
and you get a reimbursement for your cost. We do not pay to the patient to participate in a clinical study, especially in later phases. We pay for their costs. That's, I think, a fair approach for those kind of clinical studies. That's interesting. I mean, normally I wouldn't have thought of using the clinical trial itself to provide normal standard of care, though I guess we talked about this in the podcast episode on mental illness and schizophrenia clinical trials. That is one way to get schizophrenic patients on drug is to get them in clinical trials, even though, of course, there are many, many, many antipsychotics that are approved. It's very hard to get treatment, at least in the United States. So that's interesting and maybe even true in the United States that it's just hard to get to see the doctor. So this gives you the chance to see the doctor and get a good standard of care that you arguably should be getting anyway. And I think if you look at this question from a global perspective, those kind of access to standard of care is quite variable region by region or country by country. So there are countries in the world where patients are getting the standard of care only in clinical studies because the normal, usual healthcare services of the country are not able to afford the standard of care of the US or the Western European countries for the patients in that country, or they need to pay for it out of the pocket. But these drugs are very expensive. That's an interesting counterpoint. When you see the number of assessments you have to do and the length of the visit, yes, that could feel laborious that you have to be there so long. But to, to Laszlo's point, it's also the fact that you are going to go through a pretty rigorous kind of health check. All right. I think there we're just about ready to wrap up the wet AMD type. We understand what challenges there are in the clinical trials. We understand that it's an emergency. You have to get in to see an ophthalmologist right away. We understand that the clinical trials, when they exist, are going to be versus the standard of care. And the standard of care is already out there. And this can get to the standard of care, especially in some countries where standard of care is not actually easily available. Fantastic. I'm more excited about dry AMD, age-related macular degeneration, because that's where we don't have good options. We don't have a good standard of care that has been established for 20 years. We don't normally think of that as something that we have a lot of clinical trials and they're just starting to come up. Can we finish and talk about where we are on dry AMD and the excitement that you see and perceive in clinical trials there? The time we are in with dry AMD and especially the end stage of dry AMD geographic atrophy studies is very much similar to where we have been 20 something years ago with the wet type. Currently, we have therapies at the moment on the market that can slow down the progression of the disease, but they cannot stop it fully and they cannot even reverse that process. They just slow down the situation. And at the moment, the patients who are suffering from geographic atrophy are sent home in most of the countries because in most of the countries, there is nothing approved as a therapy for those conditions. It's only the US are two products approved. And now this is the time when public awareness campaigns need to be made for patients that, hey, if you have GA, geographic atrophy, you now have a treatment. Let's go back and visit your ophthalmologist, asks him about potential treatments and discuss if those drugs can be used for your case or not. And the public awareness is very important. Uh, maybe we don't even see realistically how many patients are suffering from geographic atrophy. But these patients, you know, are quite old. So 
clinical study of geographic atrophy, these patients at least 10, 15 years older than the WAD-AMD population. So they need more care and they're probably slower. They may have worse vision. So they need more treats when they come to the clinics and they go to the same clinics, which are busy with WAD-AMD patients at the same time. So this whole retinotherapy development has led into an establishment of a new subspecialty in ophthalmology, that is the medical retina and the retina specialists. And currently, these people are overloaded with the work of treatment of other retinal conditions. And if a new group of patients are coming into the clinics, this is going to cause some high traffic again at those clinics. Operationally, that's one of our bigger challenges, is that there are a finite number of retina sites doing research and there is a saturation of what's going on. And the question is, how do you make your study a priority? How do you drive the patients there? How do you get the attention of the PI and the staff? And it's something that our project leaders and our clinical trial managers and our CRAs, it's one of the biggest challenges they face at least right now in ophthalmology. There's plenty more we can talk about, but I think we'll probably end there. Jonathan Angelostro, Lajlo Bekashi, thank you so much for joining us on the Cineos Health Podcast. I learned a lot. Thank you. A pleasure, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.